for much. Good morning. Well, last Sunday we had the privilege of completing that great book, the book of Galatians, and today we're involving ourselves in a little mini-series, pre-Easter followed by post-Easter series pertaining to the work of Jesus Christ. I thought it would be fascinating to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ in sort of a pre-Easter format by turning to the last book of our scriptures, the book of Revelation, where here we find Jesus Christ revealing himself to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in around A.D. 95. And here you and I will find today and next Sunday as we explore this first chapter together that the resurrected Savior has something to say with regard to the way we go about living life today. So I'd love for you to find your way there. I'm today beginning to utilize the English Standard Version, breaking in a new Bible here. And in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and down through verse 8, find these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, my Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's look to God in prayer. Fathers, we, over these coming Sundays, explore this first chapter of Revelation together. It's meant to prepare us to think about that critical moment where three days after his crucifixion, Christ was raised from that tomb. We've got to be asking some very practical questions as to What does that mean, and how does that apply to where we are living in 2014? There's just a myriad of challenges that people in these services face as they come in to worship. 
the medical is obvious to us. There's so many stories of physical challenges that people are having to face, address. As a pastor, I'm continuously stirred by the, the youthfulness of the medical issues of, of our congregation right now. And I'm praying for a great movement of the Holy Spirit and that you be guiding and directing medical personnel as they work with their patients. We're also aware of the deep, deep issues of the heart, of the soul. You are a holy, righteous God. With that Garden of Eden incident, we've inherited the sinful nature, Adam, Eve. We've entered into this world, though physically alive, spiritually dead. And something had to be done, and what was done at the cross of Jesus Christ, where we praise you for the fact that in Jesus Christ, the sinless one became the substitute for us, the sinful ones. And you validated his finished work by raising him from the dead. So, Father, with all that in mind, what we're praying is that we open up your word as we open up these hearts. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. Examine this scene, this picture that appears on the screen. You'll notice that it says Patmos. This was the island that the Apostle John was exiled to. It was A.D. 95, most likely, in that year, that Jesus Christ, the risen one, revealed himself to the Apostle John, who tried to outrun Peter to that tomb, only to find that that grave was empty years ago. Patmos about 18 miles in circumference, Aegean Sea, off the coastline of modern-day Turkey, was a setting for those who, in the estimation of the Roman rulers, was a setting for those who had to do hard labor for rebelling against the supposed authority of the Roman emperors. Interestingly, there was a growing movement of viewing Christians as atheists, Atheists. Because if you did not believe in the Roman pantheon, the Roman gods, then you were considered to be an atheist and a rebel against the Roman rule. Because the Roman emperors viewed themselves as divine and depended upon the other gods of the Roman pantheon to guide and direct them in the expansion of their, of their efforts worldwide. By viewing Christians as those who held to a singular view of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, rather than a pluralistic view of many gods, including that emperor, they were viewed as rebels in that Roman period. Domitian, who was reigning at the time, he reigned until A.D. 96, 
wanted to be known throughout the Roman Empire as our Lord and King, which is then fascinating in the way in which Jesus Christ will reveal himself to the Apostle John on this Isle of Patmos. And so now, with that in mind, as we have this wearied elderly apostle who is part of a contingency that is doing hard labor, viewed as being rebels within that Roman Empire, for holding to a singular view of one God and one means of salvation, Jesus Christ, in a very pluralistic society the Roman Empire was. Jesus breaks into the weariness of that island. And you can imagine the stirring on that island as John would tell others about the risen Savior and what he is sharing. What we're going to do is to focus our attention primarily this morning on verse 5 down through verse 8. But to give us a running start, I want to begin reading in verse 4 where you and I are informed that John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And you can read about those seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And what is interesting is that those churches face the same issues that churches worldwide face today. And God has something to say to the universal church. But notice the very Trinitarian teaching here. Look for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in these words. Grace to you and peace from him, that's God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, that's God the Holy Spirit. You say, well, why, Gary, is it spoken of as seven spirits? Well, this is symbolic language. There were seven churches that are being referenced in chapters 2 and 3. And what we are finding here is that God is saying that the Holy Spirit in his operational role is completely ministering to the church at large. And so you've got God the Father, you've got God the Holy Spirit, and in this compact section, in verse 5, now God the Son, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So what I want to do with you in these few minutes together is to look at three significant aspects of the way in which this resurrected Savior has revealed himself to his people. Let's check them out. Number one, from verse 5 alone, we find that the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, has revealed his authority. His authority. And he's going to use three significant titles that are going to appear on the screen behind me in front of you that give us a greater understanding of the authority of Jesus Christ. Let them appear. And I want you to continuously be thinking about the time period in which Jesus has revealed himself on this Isle of Patmos to the Apostle John, who has just been sentenced to exile, hard labor with fellow believers and other rebels against the Roman cause. And now you and I are told that Jesus must be alive because he now speaks these words symbolically to the Apostle John and refers to himself as the faithful witness. Do you see it there? 
in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. But what's interesting is that that Greek word for witness is martus. We get the word martyr from that word. Now, when Jesus Christ himself was in his earthly ministry, ministering to people, he used that word in John 5, beginning in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness, martus, about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness, martus, about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, do you remember that John is the one that recorded in John chapter 11 pertaining to the raising of Lazarus that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, by making that claim, if Jesus Christ was the least bit inaccurate, then he would not have been the faithful martus, the faithful witness. But John himself, who records that thought and had processed the raising of Lazarus, then raced with Peter to that tomb which they found to be empty, and the stone rolled away, and is able to say, as I have now recounted in my mind, in the solitude, the loneliness, and the weariness of hard labor on this eye of Potmos, all that Jesus said is validated by what Jesus did when he died on that cross, as he promised, and then three days later, as he signified by saying, I am the resurrection of the life, he was raised from the dead, therefore he is the faithful witness. Now, I don't know about you, but I just didn't get my brackets to work. I had Florida. I had Florida in the final two. Now, I, I ministered in Connecticut, and I know what I'm pulling for on Monday night, but I, I, I had Florida. Now, the problem is that my predictions were impacted by what I'll call upsets with my brackets. When you and I look at the promises delivered by Jesus, so to speak, there's no upsets in his bracket. He sees himself through the finale, the final, and comes out victorious in the end. Every promise, every statement is validated. He is the faithful, not an unfaithful martus. Now there is John on that island, and he in essence is feeling the impact of martus. Martyrdom. And he's pondered now the significance of the believers through the decades and the way in which they've lived for Jesus, and some of them have lost their lives. And Jesus breaks into his island and reveals himself as the resurrected one. Feel like you're doing some hard labor? His life becomes so overwhelming. To what degree have you opened your eyes and your heart to the resurrected one 
who wants you to look at every single one of the promises. And there are no upsets in his bracket. And at the very end, there he is. And he's been faithful. Even when we've been faithless. But not only is he described as the faithful witness, furthermore, he is described as the firstborn of the dead. You see that there still the beginning of verse 5, don't you? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Now, you have to understand this with me. In order to read the book of Revelation, there are about 400 allusions, starting with the letter A, allusions to the Old Testament. If you're going to read Revelation, you're going to have to invest a lot of time in your Old Testament from Genesis through Malachi. I'm still studying to prepare for this. Where at some point in time I'll walk you through Revelation. But in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and in 23, God had said to Moses, equipping him for that moment he'd have to confront Pharaoh, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now you look at this, and what I want you to notice here, that Jesus is not described as the first of the dead, but the firstborn of the dead. Now, John on that eye of Patmos would be saying to himself, you know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That resurrection preceded the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why then is he described here in this terminology? It does not say that Jesus is the first of the dead to be raised. He is the firstborn, you see, of the dead. In other words, there is a resurrection being described here. What's the difference? Lazarus was raised to die. Jesus was raised to live. John would have hung on to that statement at the point in which Jesus then made that promise right after the raising of Lazarus. And he would have had to process that when Jesus hung on that cross and not be overly surprised that that tomb was empty. He is firstborn. This is not a biological description. This is a description of preeminence. He is the firstborn of the family of faith. Historically, globally, he gets preeminence throughout this world. We told that when Michelangelo was visiting great art galleries in European cities, he was impressed by the large number of paintings depicting Christ hanging on crosses. He simply asked this question, why are there so many galleries filled with so many pictures of Christ on the cross, Christ dying, question mark? 
why do artists concentrate on that passing episode? Because it was not the final episode. Now when you and I consider the impact of the resurrected Savior upon our lives, day in, day out, what we have to be reminding ourselves of is that I am living both publicly as well as privately before the firstborn, the preeminent one who is alive, and therefore I am accountable to the one who has authority. Does he get preeminent status in my heart? But notice that third title, he is the ruler of kings on earth. Now for that to happen, he had to be faithful in his witness, otherwise he would not have been raised from the dead, he would have been sinful. And the faithful witness that he was is the firstborn of the dead, he was raised from the dead, therefore having been raised from the dead, he is the right and he has the opportunity and the reality to be the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, you look very carefully at what is happening, you see, throughout the world today. And you look at what is taking place, say, in Crimea, and the Ukraine, and Putin's involvements. And you connect it, perhaps, to what is taking place in Iran with Ahmadinejad. And you look furthermore at what is written about in Ezekiel in 38, 39, which I plan to get to around Memorial Day weekend, a little two-part series on Gog and Magog. And what fascinates us is that we've got someone who's described as ruler of kings on earth. And it's not Domitian who ruled in AD 95 who wanted everybody to say that he was our Lord and King. The Greek historian Seculus wrote about a statue of Ozymandias found in Egypt which is said to be the largest statue ever found in that country. And Shelley wrote a poem about that ruined statue and its inscription, quote, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. I'm telling you, that's all we know about that king. Now compare that to the one who has been raised from the dead. He is faithful in his witness, therefore he is firstborn of the dead, therefore he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And now you look at what's there and you say, in my own partner's experience, have I allowed for the resurrected one to minister completely thoroughly? In the triune sense, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the issues that I'm confronted with on the daily basis is one came into this world as a sinful one, acknowledging that Christ died in my place. The resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, has revealed, you see, his authority. But there's a second aspect to this. The number two, the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, has revealed his ministry. Look carefully now at what's written here. The second part of verse 5. 
And what he will do is get you and me to pause and review his first coming. The first time Jesus hit the ground in Palestine. And notice the threefold description that unfolds here. The second part of verse 5 and verse 6. Just allow it to appear on the screen as I read. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what John has to do at this point in the most difficult extremes of his life is that he starts with the authority of who Christ is and allows for the authority of the resurrected one to help John now to review the ministry achieved by the resurrected one. And once again, there's a trio that appears before your very eyes. Jesus Christ is using triplicate here in his teaching. And I want you to see the first statement. He loves us. And you find that to him who loves us is present tense, not past tense. Samuel Tregulis, who was a New Testament editor in the 19th century, got to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and said that this is the only place in the New Testament where this verb is used in the present tense of God's love to us. Using now the King James terminology, unto him that loveth us, he went on to say, he paused, he's soaking it up. That means continually loving us constantly loving us. And then he added, all of my studies on this text were worth it. If only I had discovered this one thing, not simply loved us, but continues to love us. The story of Mr. Spurgeon, who went out and visited a man, and he looked up at the top of the man's house, and there was a weather vane up there. He had written on it, God is love. And Mr. Spurgeon, in his own inevitable way, said to the man, Well, I see you believe that the love of God is changeable. So the wind blows and God's love changes. To which the man responded, No, Mr. Spurgeon. What I mean by that is, whatever the wind blows, God is still love. Where's the wind blowing in your life? Feel like you've got the wind in your face rather than the wind behind your back? God still loves. You haven't hit Martus yet, but Christ has for you and for me. And he still loves. 
And chances are, no matter how difficult your life circumstances might be, you haven't shed blood yet for the one who shed blood for you. Because look at this next statement. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. To him who loves us, in verse 5, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And now you look at that and you realize that that is Jesus Christ working as our substitute. That's redemption. That's reality. And it's secured not by my blood, where I function as some martyr trying to die for my Allah, but rather God the Father sending his Son, a complete reverse, to die for you and die for me. One of my professors of years past, Robert Coleman, has written of a story, a little boy whose sister needed blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance for recovery was transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And since the two children had the same rare blood type, Dr. Coleman writes, the boy was the ideal donor. Would you give your blood to marry? The doctor asked. And John hesitated, and his lower lips started to tremble. And then he smiled and said, sure, my sister. And soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary, pale, thin, John, robust, strong. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. And as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded, and she, he watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice, slightly shaky, broke the silence. Doctor, when do I die? Only then, Dr. Coleman writes, did the physician realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he had agreed to donate his blood. He'd thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life for his sister. And in that brief moment, he'd made his great decision. And in eternity past, God the Son made his great decision. Not reactively at the last minute. Proactively in eternity past. He, to him who loves us, present tense, and has freed us, past tense, from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, which means then that you and I as priests have access to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. You don't need a go-between on this earth, because you've got your go-between in heaven, the resurrected one, the sinless one who died for the sinful ones, 
and then whose work is validated by three days later being raised from the dead. You see the flow of thought here and the logic unfolding. Because he's the faithful witness, he can be the firstborn of the dead, and because he's the firstborn of the dead, therefore he's the ruler of kings on the earth. He establishes his authority. He sweeps us back over his ministry. We review the first coming, and we understand that this was done out of his love for us, present tense, and he freed us from our sin by his blood, past tense. Therefore, he's made us a kingdom of priests. We've got access to God through the resurrected and ascended Savior, present future tense. All this ties together, and you say, well, you've taken me through a review, but what about a preview? Let's preview the second coming. If he can review the first coming, because he's resurrected, he can preview the second coming. He's already validated the ability and the right to do it through resurrection. So let's do a little previewing and let it appear on the screen. And again, three significant statements appear out of verse 7, where we're told, Behold, it's a very powerful, strong word. Look! With exclamation point. You see the three descriptions? He is coming with the clouds, taken from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Secondly, every eye will see him. Comma. Even those who pierced him, you can't get away from that cross. So I've been tracking some of the college basketball. I was thinking about that legendary coach John Wooden of UCLA who always kept a cross in his pocket. Kept it there to remind himself that there's something more important in life than basketball. But it was an empty cross. There's an empty grave. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. And now what John's doing is he's merging together Daniel 7.13 with Zechariah 12, verse 10. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. Now, once he's established his authority with three titles, and then he gives us his ministry, and first coming with three points and second coming with three distinctives, he pulls it all together now. And thirdly, what we find here is that the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, has revealed his deity, his godness. Start with that first statement in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And you say, why, why, Gary, does that appear that way? Look at what appears on the screen. This is the Greek alphabet. And what we've done is we have circled the Alpha and the Omega. Look where they're found. The Alpha is at the very beginning. The Omega is found at the very end. One of the 
wonderful people at the NFS service came up to me and she said, Gary, uh, why was this not delivered in the Hebrew alphabet? And the answer is that on the Isle of Patmos, the language of Greek was the universal written language. And because God wanted to communicate this universally, he used a universal language to communicate universal truths about Jesus. And so now here is the Apostle John on that aisle. And there he is sentenced because of Domitian, who wants people to review him as our Lord and King. And then he is pondering, this one who is the ruler of kings on earth, who has broken into his potmost experience. And likewise now, you've got to allow Jesus to break into your own experience of life as the ultimate martus, the one that died for you and for me. And we embrace the fact that not only is he described as the Alpha and the Omega, but you and I are also informed of who is and who was and who is to come out of verse 8. That's the next statement that can appear on the screen. And thirdly, he is the Almighty which means that death is not almighty. Jesus is. Which means that Domitian is not almighty. Jesus is. Which means that no matter what it is you are facing, it is not almighty. Jesus is. For three days later, the one who established his authority, his ministry, and his deity validates his claims. There were no upsets in his bracket. He's there to the end. As the worship team comes forward, let's look to our Lord and pray. Praising you and thanking you, Father, that we can use these verses as we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday to be thinking seriously about the trials and the challenges of life. Here's a man in his latter years. We would think that you'd go easier on us at that point. And you chose the beloved one according to the scriptures of the apostles, John, to be on that arm. But it's there he received this vision from Jesus. He shares it with us a universal truth expressed in a universal way so we can worship the God of the universe. And for this we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.